at it, John. I'm at it. You're it. You're on. Oh, pray. Shall we pray? Yeah. This is on now, right? Yes, that's definitely on. Okay, uh, welcome to this course. <clears throat> it's called uh, From Brat to Beatific. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, who knows what a brat is? That's the easy one. A spoiled child. A spoiled child, um, a child that's um, acting uh, more like a child than the evolving adult that it's supposed to be growing into. Uh, now, the second one, what's beatific mean? Uh, it's um, very close. Uh, beatitudes is drawn from this core word of beatific. Now, when you read the beatitudes, when the master goes through uh, that section, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, now you're getting hot to what the term beatific means. It's the same core word. Being blessed. Being beautiful. Becoming blessed in the highest and truest sense of the word. However, in the history of Christian thought then, the notion of the beatific vision became a theological construct, the beatific vision. Has anyone heard this term before? The beatific... Oh. I won't be able to say anything. <laughs> okay, great. Well, that's fine. I mean, this, I, it's great to come to a class and learn something new. I mean, that's... The beatific vision is the most blessed experience that you could have. It is the consummation of all experiences. And does anyone want to now guess what that might be? What would the beatific vision be? If it's the most blessed, if it's the greatest vision, sight, apprehension that one could attain, what would that be? What do you think? To be one with God. The beatific vision is to see God as God is. And it is something that uh, may not be achievable in this life, although I'm going to show you some passages this morning just to get us started on this concept because the whole course is going to be based on this analogy that the apostles use. They take human development as we know it on the human level. And we all start off like newborns and we turn into brats and then the whole process, and I've got a chart here in the notes that I gave you that sketches it all out. Well, the apostles take the human normal development that we all go through and they draw uh, spiritual corollaries to the realm of the spirit and they actually use the terminology that we use in the physical realm and they draw a correlation between stages of spiritual growth. So 
what I want to do today, this morning, is to start off and give you some passages and some thinkers on the topic of the beatific vision so that you can see in God's mind where we're ultimately going. Uh, if we said maturity is the apex in the <laughs> physical realm, uh, how many of you think that you are now a mature adult? <laughs> And you can only postpone adolescence and young, young adulthood so long. Um, don't break my heart. My younger friends, uh, I watch them, and they are increasingly becoming very successful in prolonging adolescence longer and longer and longer. And I don't want to come and speak with my more mature friends and have you do the same thing and tell me you haven't reached it yet. I think, uh, what would you think uh, the age is when we consider somebody to have achieved or should have achieved. Come on right in. 26. 26. <laughs> uh, good morning. Uh, all right, so we got 26, or you got some? 26. When, when do we say somebody's hit the 21? That's legally, that's when you're called an adult. But we still make these categories, right? You're 21, and then you say that, but they're a young adult. <laughs> Yeah, legally you're an adult. <clears throat> but when do we really... 30? 55. 55? <laughs> and we also know... Next year. Thank, that's the best answer yet. Um, we all know that there's, uh, it's subjective. But nevertheless, for the purposes of society, we have these designations in which we consider somebody, well, you're an adult, you're a full-blown adult now, <coughs> you've achieved maturity. Okay, so I want to give you some passages now, and we're going to go John, Paul, Dante, and C.S. Lewis. I want to show you the scope of the beatific vision, and what we're tr trying to do here is start with what's God's ultimate plan? What would be God's ultimate definition of total maturity, the final apex of our development as creatures? And then we're going to work backwards. So let's start with the first one, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have a whole bunch of them right here, and I would like you to have one, so uh, who would need one? Yes, sir, there we go. Anyone else? Okay, beautiful. 1 John. Chapter 3, I know uh, Judge Milligan's already pointed out we need tables, so we will have them next week so that you can spread books out and really have a classroom experience. All right, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, goes something like this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And we are. The reason that the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, who can look at that text and tell me what is the beatific vision? What is the apex of development from God's uh, point of view, and we want to unpack this text a little bit. We shall, like we shall be like him. Why shall we be like him? What's the mechanism or the dynamic that's going to cause us to become like him? Sorry? He reveals 
Yes, we shall see him as he is. Now, underscore that. To see God as God is, is debatable, questionable, whether that can even happen in this lifetime. Why? To see God as God really is. Not through the filter of our uh, culture, not through the framework of our own personal experiences and all the stuff that we've had in our lifetime that sort of color the vision of God. We shall see God as God is. Only God can grant that to us to liberate us from our own um, biases and give us a revelation. That's the beatific vision, to see God as God is. And as a result of that, what does he say happens? When we will see God as God really is, we shall become like God. That's the function of the beatific vision. Now, does he say anything to us about ourselves now? How does he refer to us as in the current time that we live? We, we are now currently called the children of God. We are God's family. And he's uh, extolling the love of God. Look at what love God has poured down upon us that we should even be called the children of God. Uh, but then he goes on to the next stage. It's going to get a lot better because eventually we're going to see God as God really is. And therefore, then when we have that beatific vision, we shall become like God. Okay, so that's one way of looking at the beatific vision. Now, the question is, between that final apex, the beatific vision that's held out to us as the ultimate, um, there's a whole series of steps and gradations as we go through this life, working our ways up to the beatific vision. There have been people that have had uh, visions of God, and I'm going to read to you from Dante and some other people. Can you think of anybody in the Bible that had close to a beatific vision? Great epiphanies, revelations of God, um, sometimes called theophanies. Uh, Paul was taken to the third heaven, he says, and he saw things that are not, depending on how you translate it, permittable or expressible. And I prefer it the latter. I think what he's saying is, is that the experience was so beyond anything that we can understand that it would be futile to try to reduce it down to words. And you're going to see in a few minutes when I read Dante to you that he does the same thing when he describes his vision of God. So Paul had an experience with God that was certainly beatific. Um, yes. Yes, um, he's in the presence of God and his face is radiating the Shekinah glory of God when he comes back down and the people are, uh, as you would well imagine, if you saw somebody's face shining like a stadium lamp, you'd probably be a little weirded out too. So they actually ask him to put a veil on his face so that it would tone the glory down. And then when he would go in and speak with the Lord, he'd take the veil off and speak face to face. Now this is a little bit, bit of a an earthly beatific vision. It's not the apex. It's not the ultimate, but it's a hint. Okay, let's try one more. Can you think of anybody else that had close to, in this lifetime, a beatific vision of God, a vision of God that completely uh, tore up their entire paradigm of the way they look at life and uh, really altered everything? Oh, brilliant. The, uh, the transfiguration. 
Um, this is a, a very important text. You know, uh, Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist from uh, the 20th century, and he wrote a book called uh, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in there, he makes a big deal out of the section. I want you to look with this, uh, at this with me just so you can see how important it is to read the Bible in context, too. Um, look at Matthew 16. And the master gives them this promise um, that you are not going to, and it's verse 28 of Matthew 16. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, based on this passage, Bertrand Russell goes on and on in his book about, this is primary evidence for why the Christian faith can't be true. Because, why? Because it didn't happen. And uh, but he made a, and for somebody who is truly a genius, he made a classic mistake. He failed to read the passage in its context. Chapter 17 continues the storyline. There shouldn't even be a chapter there. Uh, it was just man-made. But just read it now without that 17 sitting there in front of your face. So I'll start at 28. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, what happens? Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John and led them to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. Now, we read it in its context. <coughs> Is it a true statement? Some of you are standing here that will not see death before you see the... Son of Man coming in, in the kingdom and with glory. Six days later, he gave that vision to them. And they had, Dr. Smith, a beatific vision. They saw the Lord uh, glorified, transfigured before them. These are all, uh, I would say, harbingers or uh, approximations of the beatific vision that God grants to us in this life. The ultimate beatific vision, though, is going to be the final cure. And now let's get a little bit more specific. So how would you, uh, if we wanted to put John here, uh, what, uh, and if you want to take notes, you can start on page um, three. How would you reduce that? What's John's definition of the Pacific vision? And we're going to write across the line here, then we're going to do Paul. And we're going to do Dante, and then we're going to do C.S. Lewis. Just so you can see the consistency down through the ages. There's a thousand-year gap between Paul and Dante, and the theology remains the same. Okay, uh, Paul, Romans, uh, oh, I'm sorry, John. What, 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 reduce it for me. What's the essence of it? Okay, we're going to see him as... He is. That's, that's the thing. No filters. No, um, no need for any theophanies. No need for burning bushes. No need for anything. We're going to see God as God really is. And God's going to give us the supernatural power, the ability to absorb that vision. And uh, we'll get it straight finally, ultimately. It'll be the final corrective to everything that we've ever wondered about God. And... We'll see and be like. We'll be conformed. Now, let's go to Paul, and that would be Romans 8, 28 through 30. 
And um, I don't know, we don't have a, oh, we do have a mic. Who would like to read this morning? Feel strong and awake. Within whose body has the caffeine kicked in? You guys really are present. Oh, thank you. Start at verse 28 and go nice and slow, and I'm going to ask questions of the group as we work through it. We know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined Ah, yes, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. All right, let's stop right there. We'll keep reading. First thing we learn from this text is what? The very first thing that God, uh, Paul reveals to us. God has, uh, God is good and is working everything out for the Good. good. According to his purpose. But good in this passage now has to be defined as an equivalency to God's purpose. It's not our definition of good. It's God's definition of good, which is equivalent to God's purpose for each one of us. So God has a purpose for each one of us. God's working everything together towards that end to achieve that purpose. Does he tell you in this text what that purpose is? Conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. So it's the same concept that John is teaching, just different terminology. Here he says, we'll be like him, we'll see him as he is. Over here, Paul uses another, we will be conformed to be just like him. Yes, sir. Um, yes, I mean, the goal is for this huge um, spiritual family, all bearing um, not physical DNA similarities, but what? Spiritual similarities, we will all be conformed to how God really is. Now, just think about that. This isn't, you want to come in or, please, don't sit there by yourself. You're not bothering anyone. I know, you tried to sneak in, and I busted your plans up, I know. Okay, um, I just want to reemphasize this. This is not akin to any God experiences that we would have in this lifetime that move us incrementally closer to what God really is. This is the final stage. This is complete and utter conformity. This is seeing God as God is and having the miracle of the transformation occur. We shall be just like him. Now, that's going to be a corporate experience as well as an individual experience, and that's why Paul puts this in. This is the destiny of us all who claim to be Christians. Now, does he give you more information? Let's go on, Judge. To, does he tell us how God is working this out, this plan? 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, now here we have the great acts of God. And we're in a Presbyterian church today, so there's no, no uh, shying away from it. Number one, the great acts of God. To the end of producing creatures that are conformed to the image of Christ, it starts with what? Uh, so, you know, God is sovereign. And that's the way I'm going to look at this today. We're not going to get on the rabbit trail of uh, double predestination or did he throw some away and say I'm not going to save them. Uh, what I want you to think about is that this text is saying to us that it's God that's the initiator. God's the sovereign one. God uh, had this in his, God's mind from the very beginning to do this, to work this out so that we would share in the likeness and nature of Christ. And God, it's all God's plan. And number two, because God's sovereign and predestined us to this experience, then God does what? In time, space, history, God calls us. And uh, if you want to get real theological, this is what Presbyterian uh, theologians call the effectual call. This is the call that really sticks. Uh, if you look back over your life, and everybody comes to Christ in different ways, but you can hear some people talk about how uh, they had an experience in seventh grade and an experience in ninth grade, and then they had a youth leader in twelfth grade, or they went through catechism. All these uh, events, right? And each one of them were very important, and every one of them represents an opportunity that, that God creates within us to respond to God's call. But in this passage, call, Paul means the kind of call that results in what? God calls, and you say yes, for real. And everybody probably in this room can probably point to something of a time period, whether that's exactly when you became a Christian or not is not the point. The point is, is it's that time in your life when you know that God has called you and that you know that you've said yes to Christ and that you know you belong to Christ. Uh, this is a big event in everybody's life, okay? And then as a result of being called and you saying yes, God does another thing. God justifies us. And uh, in, I'm in a Presbyterian church this morning. I can usually actually use this word. Justification. The definition from catechism that you took 47 years ago. What is it? <laughs> the state of justification. Just yeah, I never could say it right either. <laughs> Justify. Just if I had never sinned. That's a great working definition. It is that state of blessedness in which God says to you, because of the work of Christ on the cross and what he did for you, uh, you are imputed. You are given legally. I'm looking at a judge. It is a declared judicial statement on God's part in which God says to us, I consider you to be righteous in my eyes. You are declared to be free from sin because of the merits of Christ. When I look at you now, I don't see a sinful woman. <laughs> it's a joke. I see, it's all true, right, for vote me too. I don't see the... the um, 
the sins that you've done, I see now what God says. I see Christ. I see the righteousness of Christ. She's covered in the righteousness of Christ. And you did what to obtain this? Zero. Nothing. It's by grace. It's by faith alone. Yes, but that's not considered to be a work in this context because God, the sovereign one, has arranged this and worked it out so that when God does call, you do say, say yes. No, you didn't do anything. <laughs> now listen, I, I see one of these here. Uh, now just use this illustration. I, all, all analogies to this kind of stuff. I mean, theologians have been arguing about, you know, predestination and all that forever, so I'm not going to solve it in a day, but let's take one of these. Now, I saw this this morning, and I really wanted it, but I didn't, didn't have time to get into it. Now, let's say you go on a 10-day fast. I put you on a 10-day fast, and then I take you into a, a place where they have all these kinds of things sitting out. They've just been baked. The aroma is radiating through the place. Um, I've now put you in a position where I'm not, I'm not actually going to make you eat the food, but I have caused you to fast for 10 days and then I take you to a restaurant. What's the likelihood of what's going to happen here? <laughs> and, and if you want to say, uh, you know, yeah, I chose to eat, yes, you did. But I created within you the preconditions that were of such power that it was almost like you had no other choice. I don't know anybody in the right mind after fasting for 10 days that would walk out of a bakery and say, no, thank you, I don't want to eat that. And so what God does in, in our lives is work it out in such a way so that when that effectual call comes, we are preconditionally set up through the grace of God to take that step in and say yes. But it still can't even be ascribed to us as a work because God's the one that did it inside of us that made us inclined to want to say yes in the first place. This is God's sovereign grace. Is this familiar to you guys, or did you just blow off the catechism completely? <laughs> I, there's, there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests we get a merit badge for having said yes to Jesus. It's just the divine realization that we need him, that God causes to happen inside of us. And then we step into it. Does that make sense? You said that in I hope I have. <laughs> and by the way, I, when I go to a Baptist church, I don't teach any differently. This is, this is stone cold uh, Christian theology. We, we get no, there's no merit on our part. And there's no, uh, uh, you can't even be proud of the fact that you said yes to Jesus. Because in the end, you have to ascribe it to the sovereign grace of God that you did. Yes, and then I'll go to Dan. What about the ones who say no? Well, this is to the judge's point. I mean, you never become a puppet. And the, and the idea that you could say no is laid out there in the New Testament. And there are people that do say no. Um, but it's not either that God has failed. Um, God still creates the conditions within those people. They still have the choice, but it's, it's the mystery of divine grace that when you do go in, when you do say yes, you are to understand once you get in 
that it was not your superior intelligence or anything that led you to say yes. It was truly the grace of God. And that is, it is like a little mystery. It, it's, it's hard to parse it out beyond that. Now, I want to go to Dan, and then we'll go to you. Yes. Okay, so we, we are body, soul, and spirit. And in our, in our body, in our natural realm, in our, we make choices and we will ourselves to do things. And that's where you're looking at this. But this, this is in our spiritual realm. This goes beyond it. And this is the spirit. This is God. These are God's words. These are our spiritual side. Things that we don't understand. These are things that we can't will in ourselves. These are willed in us by God through grace. And when you, look at, when you look at yourself making choices and willing yourself to do, you are working in your, your natural realm, your physical realm, your non-spiritual realm. And, and, and when, I, when you read scripture like this and you try and put that into that aspect or on the sports field, it's very difficult, you know, like sports is, is, a, is a physical thing. It's very difficult and it's easy to get confused. Because in a sporting event, the coach says, come yeah. on, go, go, uh, buck it up, do, shake yeah. it off, get out yeah. there and try yeah. harder. And then we do that in our physical lives. We say, oh, I'm going to read the scripture, and I'm going I'm I'm to do this. I'm gonna, and I get this because I'm going to make that decision, and I'm going to make that decision to say yes. But this is a spiritual thing that comes to us through grace that we have no ability to accept. It just happens inside us, and it wells up inside you in your spiritual side. But you have to believe you have that side to your life for that to make sense. Okay. Yes, sir. What about the guy that turned down the call uh, over and over and over again throughout his life? He gets cancer and now he meets his maker and he's going to meet his maker and he asks for Christ's forgiveness and so forth. Where does he fall into that? Well, it would just be an extension of my... uh, bakery illustration. Uh, God may put us in certain circumstances in our lives in which everything gets stripped away, and sooner or later, even the most hardened person uh, towards God comes to realize, this is, my life is fading away. There's, I have nothing. It's being taken away from me. That could be a precondition of God's grace that God puts a person in, so they come to that final realization, this isn't my life. I'm losing my life. I've got to get right with God. It's still God sovereignly arranging these learning scenarios so that when you enter into them, when you come out the other side, grace has had its effect on you and you've said yes. Yes. As someone with no credentials at all, to presume to be a theologian. That's me. I want to presume to answer it, but don't trust me. (laughs) My answer is this. We're supposed to become like God. What is God like? God said we're to forgive 70 times 7. 
which means forever. So if at the last minute the person asks to be forgiven, if God is as he says he is, he's forgiven. Hitler, maybe, is in heaven because he certainly at the end of his life looked around and saw his dream crumbled. I don't know where he is, none of us do. But no matter what atrocities people have done, if God forgives 70 times seven, again, don't trust me, I'm not a theologian. Okay, now I'm gonna use one other fancy word up here. And it's a favorite among all people who hold strongly to the sovereignty of God. It's antinomy. Anti against nomi, nomos law. And antinomy are two truths that appear to be contradictory. And this is what we're at here. Because it appears that we have will, and it appears that we have choice, and everywhere in the scripture, the scripture calls us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to him. Then there's another truth, though, that's told to us. You're urged to exercise your volitional ability and to say yes to Jesus, but then you get this information that basically says what? God's got it all under control. So there's two truths that hit inside of your rational brain and say this doesn't make sense. So let me give you an illustration and see if this helps. So imagine <clears throat> this is the gate of heaven, and above here, instead of welcome to brat to petific, it would say, uh, welcome to heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's about as wide of a statement as you can get. What's the condition from coming in? Welcome to heaven. What's the condition? Just receive Jesus and you, okay? So then once you do, you receive Jesus and you go through and um, you come onto the other side of the gate and you look back up here inscribed on the inside of heaven and it says what? Chosen from the foundation of the world. Um, called and justified by the grace of God. Are you, understand what I'm saying? What's the difference? Chosen from the foundation of the world. Here it's an open invite to everybody. Once you get in, you look back up here and, and God's telling you what? I knew you. I chose you. You're here because I worked all this out, not because of what you did. Now, Dan's illustration might help us here. Um, what we're trying to do is figure out God with our intellect, and when we hit these antinomies in the Bible, it's the most frustrating thing. I can literally remember laying my head down on my desk in a systematic theology class, and this had to be like 1975, and saying, this is beyond my brain. I'm either going to have to go into another zone and accept the fact that antinomies are real, that the scripture has these two notions, God is sovereign and at the same time we're responsible, or, I, or I'm gonna try to have to do what all the other theologians do, and that is favor one over the other. And that's what will happen to us when we go down that path. You'll either exalt the sovereignty of God to such an extent that humans become puppets, or you will exalt the volitional ability and responsibility of humans to such an extent that you will wind up denying the sovereignty of God and almost paint God as hopeless there 
like, I wish you would believe, and I'm trying to help you believe, but uh, I, there's nothing I can really do about it. It's up to you. These two will wrestle in your mind, and the only way out of it, I think, is to accept the antinomy that both are true. Yes. I, is it just in part that we are so linear in our thinking? Yes. I mean, time, we have this concept of one thing follows another. And causality, yeah, yes. Causality. And, and, and this is all happening at the same time. In yeah. And of course, one of the points of the beatific vision, why it is going to prove to be the ultimate healing for us, is because when we finally, yes, when we finally see God as God is, and when we are finally conformed to the image of God, there's going to be actually even an intellectual healing that will take place within us, that these things suddenly will make sense. Yes. So then where do I get hope for my children? Um... In what sense? You mean that they may not currently be right. believing the way that you want to? You have to put your eggs in the basket that God loves them way more than you do and that God is working constantly through the Holy Spirit. We're told that in other places to bring people to the place of repentance. The persuasion of the Holy Spirit is what brings people to Christ. Uh, Jesus taught this very clearly that when he comes, Jesus said, this is in John 16, he will persuade the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because you don't yet believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer can see me. Of judgment because the prince of this world stands judged. So those three things, what the Holy Spirit does on the not yet Christian is persuade them you know you have a sin problem. And he does it so sweetly. The Holy Spirit creates these learning scenarios for us in which we learn, yes, we are sinful. And then he creates these learning uh, scenarios for us in which we learn that we need the righteousness of Christ because of our sinfulness. And then he creates learning scenarios for us in which the judgments, the justice of God that gets put down on certain situations that are truly evil. We watch these and we see that there is a God who judges sin. All of that is woven together by the Holy Spirit and is constantly doing that for those who have not yet come in. So your hope ought to be in the sovereign works of God, not in you know, anything that your kids are actually doing at this point in time. God's working on them. That's where you should put your hope in. Does that make sense? This text is in John 16. God is sovereignly, secretly at, at this very moment working on your kids, doing those three things. And the thing is, we just never know what's going on in any of us at any given point in time. But we are to take it on faith and, and the assurance of Christ that God is working. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is, I, it, is it satisfying? That's the other part of the question, though. Is, the, is that satisfying? So you don't, you don't feel that you can put your eggs in the basket that God has uh, uh, shown us the love of God in Christ and has this glorious plan and has already taken the initiative to provide us with a Savior. You, you feel like what? That... It, it feels like they do. I'm with you, Judge. They, they the, do. They have to respond. And they so do. that, so they until do. then, so I'm just a mess this morning. I'm sorry. 
Yes, you can throw out the prodigal son. I'm trying to put this in context of that, which has always been such an inspirational parable for me that the son wants his inheritance right away. He takes off. He's with the hogs and the prostitutes. He then realizes, and maybe that's the key. What did he realize? That I don't want this life. Yeah, There's God created that, or allowed. And that may be the key word because he then turns action to go back to his father. And his father's watching for him. He's always been there. He's always loved him. And he runs out. And that's what's been so powerful for me. But whether it was realized, turned, that's what... I'm struggling yeah. with that. There, there come, the love is always there, but there was at some point in time in his life where he realized. And, and that's, uh, maybe if you could address how that works into this. Well, let's look at it. What we are told in that story is that we have the son, and he winds up, just to make it simple, um, among the pigs. Now, when he was having a blast spending the money, uh, doubt, doubt, doubtful that he was thinking a lot about God. It's when he gets to this place that he starts to realize the consequences of the choices that he's made and that it would be far better if he would return to his father. What we don't get told in the story is what I just got done telling uh, Terry. If you go and read John 16, 5 through 15, you now get told by the master the secret work of the Holy Spirit that was going on inside of that person all the time that they were going through this learning experience, nurturing and leading them along to the place where they did use their will. So we always have to make a choice. But what Paul is saying is is that the sovereignty of God cannot be impugned. God's going to bring this to pass. Um, if, if God has known you from all eternity, God is going to bring it to a conclusion and does so through the secret, mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. Not secret, but mysterious. And where that, he's pouring all this grace into the kid, where that magical, mystical line is is when his will gets enough power through God's grace to make the choice. If that work hadn't been done by the Holy Spirit... The Bible says what? If we now branch it out to the whole human race and get rid of this, we would all find ourselves in this situation. We started off creatures and children of God, and we wound up living with the pigs. And uh, what? That would be about it. That's how human beings would live and die with no hope. So one of the presumptions, I know that when you get hit with the sovereignty of God and God's totally in control, it can be... Wow, but it, the presumption is is that human beings would be able to make these choices on our own and actually return to God. And the Bible says, oh no, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be quite content to live among the pigs. We'd carve out some form of an existence and be relatively happy with it. So that's, Judge, how I would explain the story. We just, it's a partial story. It's a beautiful story. Later on, the theology gets a little deeper, and we now understand how such a return to God could be possible. Yes, sir. Uh, 
I, I've, I've heard this my whole career about mothers particularly, sometimes fathers, that their kids, they're worried about their kids, their kids don't believe in God, they're not coming to church, and so forth like that. You know, it's a lot better for us to just relax and let God do that. And we don't have control and let him take care of it and stop worrying because that's gonna, it'll give you all kinds of physical problems as well as emotional problems. Yeah, I, I, I won't say that either one of these theological positions is gonna solve all of our problems. There are intellectual issues if you go to the sovereignty side um, that you're going to have to work out. But it is absolutely more comforting to believe that God is totally in control and is working out all things for good than it is to believe that God's up in heaven saying, I hope things work out. I hope you make the right choice. But unless you do, I can't really do anything for you. Now, which one gives you more comfort as you're laying in bed? That the all-sovereign, almighty, omnipotent God, uh, omniscient, has worked all things out and is bringing them to pass? Or... God's attitude is, well, good luck. I hope things work out for you, and if you make the right choices, I'm ready to help you. Well, let's hear her first, yeah. Hang on, I'm coming. <laughs> I know. Uh, to comment on what Terry said, it's comforting to think that, you know, God has this all worked out for my children. Where does my prayer fit into that? Well, then you can just go back to this text right here and you'll see it when you when you go and look it up today i'm going to give you two on this particular passage or on this topic children read that and then read um i'll cite this to you philippians 2 um 12 and 13. you should pray that the holy spirit you should pray in harmony with the holy spirit please persuade my child that they are sinful. Please show them that they need the righteousness of Jesus, that there is no righteousness outside of Jesus. Please persuade them that the prince of this world who is behind all of the evil that gets done is under the judgment of Christ and all of those that follow him blatantly, willfully, and do his will will also be judged. This is something that's a precondition for a, a soul to receive grace. And you can pray along those lines and pray in harmony with God. And then watch carefully for those little opportunities when your kid starts talking about either sin or their need for righteousness, that they don't feel very good about themselves, or the judgments that come. And uh, I don't use this manipulatively, but when I'm with people, for example, <clears throat> uh, in a political season, uh, this seems to come up a lot. <laughs> the amount of judgment that is being flung out on people. So you can start with a person just lovingly and saying, so what, you think that there's really a right and wrong and that there really are consequences for uh, certain policies and uh, political lying or... Uh, adjusting facts or certain activities that the government does leads to certain consequences that we could consider to be uh, worthy of uh, condemnation or judgment. Yes, you can do that. And you can, you can start the discussions with people on these three topics. And it helps the Holy Spirit then put those constructs in their mind. There really is such a thing as sin, and I'm one of them. 
there really is such a thing as the righteousness of God, and I need it. There really is such a thing as judgment on sin, and I don't want to have that. And the, that's what the Holy Spirit does, is work, work the soul to, the word is persuasion. And in fact, it's a legal term that he uses in Greek there. The Holy Spirit persuades. You might have seen the translation as convicts. He will convict the world. And that's, they're trying to get that legal thing, but I prefer persuasion because convict sounds so negative. It's not like convicting in a condemnatory sense. It's an internal persuasion that the soul finally really does get it. I need Jesus. And that's what causes them to come, not because they sat down one day and exercised their will on their own power and said, I'm going to become a Christian. It's God that's doing it. Yes, sir. Um, I'm looking at through historical prism, um, the 15th century Reformation, you know, salvation through faith, it is about grace. Um, and then in, in our culture, in Western culture, the, the 17th and 18th century revival movements, which I often tend to refer to as the anti-Reformation, because in many ways I think it put us back into the mindset of works. Um, the question isn't, it seems to me, what do I have to do or what I am not doing? Uh, in other words, is it, is it all God or is it all me? The real question, it seems to me, is what is God doing? In other words, God, God is always acting, and, and to live Thank in the you. realm that God is always acting, and it, it isn't what God wants from us or expects. It is, it is what is God doing right now. And I take it to be that this is a constant thing that the Holy Spirit does on every soul. It's just that we resist the grace of God, and most people won't tell you, Terry. Your kids aren't going to really tell you. Yes, I have great internal conflict inside of myself and cognitive dissonance right now because I've got all this pressure coming down from me on God, from God, and I don't want to do what God said. No one's going to openly say that. <laughs> well, then, then you could lovingly say, well, dearie, welcome to the human race. I mean, God really does exist, and God loves you, and this stuff, that this cognitive dissonance and this internal torment that you have is because the Holy Spirit is trying to persuade you that you need Jesus. Yes, that's the way you can work with a soul that when you identify them going through this process. Yes, sir. Then one, one of the things I think we all kind of grew up with from, from being children in Sunday school, and and today being Sunday, and the average football game is about three hours, that we were going to watch this videotape, God was going to watch this videotape of our lives and what we did, and that's how we would be judged. Yes. And, and we left it at that, and we never got beyond that. And, and I think the judgment that God really is looking at is not what we did and how we um, didn't do, but how we met this challenge that you're talking about in our spiritual lives, did we accept and come to the relationship? And I've got a feeling there's only one standard God's going to look at in the time of judgment. He's going to say, all the time you spent with the pigs, all the bad things you did, you know, with the girls or the boys, you know, it's okay. I did that. I, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> what I really wanted it to do was bring you to this. And this is my only judgment for you. 
You've got a good heart, and you found me, and you're back in relationship with me, and you beat the garden. And I got a feeling that's the real judgment. Yeah, that's, that's a good way, yes. This is nice of you, Dave, to do this. The one incident in my life that is probably that pivotal incident that you talk about where you say you can look back was a, a guy who had an eighth grade education, an Amish boy. Um, I, asked, I said to him, well, what do the Amish think you have to do to get into heaven? And he looked at me like I had just asked the most stupid question, not in a condescending way, but kind of like, I can't believe you don't know this. And his answer was, it's already been done. And in that moment, it, it was like the little light bulb of the cartoon went on above my head, you know, and mm -hmm. it was, and that, I think that, for me, that kind of is talking about, you know, it, it's already been done. Okay, good. And what, what I, what I want to do in this course is to show you the process that we move from being brats to the Pacific vision. And yes, we're always going to have that tension between what's God's grace and what's our choice. So let's look at this passage now, too, to anchor it in our minds and see if this will help us understand the process. Um, because God does give us information in the scripture that kind of shows us the dynamics that take place. So you get to Philippians 2, um, and it's 12 and 13. And this we need to unpack carefully because people read this out of context. Um, somebody read it for us, the first part of the verse. Read verse 12 in particular. And let's... All right, now, all right, great. Now, if you just focus on that part of the verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it sounds like the process that God brings us from brat to patific is what? This is directed at your will. You take it in, uh, separated from the previous information or the next piece of information, and it sounds like what? This is on me. I got to do this. Now, the reason that he says this, or the foundational thing that's supporting this assertion, is that key little preposition for the reason that I'm telling you to work out your salvation with a sense of awe and amazement is really what he means, not being afraid of God, but just, is this possible that God could be doing this, bringing me into a state of the beatific vision, working out my salvation? Well, how can he say that? Why does he tell us to do this? Because... For, look carefully at the text, it is God that is at work where both to will, are you with me? Both to will and to do. Both to will and to do. So, if you, this is a person that's already a Christian. He's telling them, and in effect, not you independently working out your own salvation as if it's something that you're doing on your own. No, he's saying, look, God's already working in your will and he's already giving you grace so that you wind up doing God's will. 
And as a result, then, he can confidently say, let this process of God working in you to change your will and to change your behavior, let it have its full effect. Let it be worked out. Now, you're looking at me like I'm a cult leader, so tell me what you're thinking, because I don't think that, what? Well, a couple of years ago, you did a, a whole Sunday morning series on the word salvation. Yes. What is salvation? One of the understandings, one of the deep truths that runs throughout that word is health. Yes, health, wellness. To work out your health, your yes. spiritual, and I would say in this case, your spiritual health. Wellness. Yeah, your wellness. And what's work- the ultimate wellness? Oh, um, complete union with Christ. Yeah, the beatific vision. Yeah. So we're working, God's taking us through this process where we start off like little brats, and he wants to take us here, and this interior section is the dynamic. Yes, go ahead. So what does desire have to do with us? Desire. Yeah, I, I, I take it to be that God is the one that's secretly working the grace inside of us so that we want, we will, we desire, we want God. If God didn't do that for us, we would be, I believe, quite content to stay in the pig pen forever. And that's very offensive to people, but that's the, the, the outrageous offense of Presbyterian doctrine because it, what it does is tell you What? Sorry, you think you're really, really important as a human being, but if you think you're really dignified, you think you're beyond all this stuff, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you wouldn't even think about God. And we get confused, and we think this stuff's coming from inside of us. I'm not saying that we're robots. I'm saying God is creating the preconditions inside of us that we start the care. And obviously, God wants us to get to the place where when we get here... We now understand what God's doing, and so we willingly cooperate. We want God to finish the job. Whereas, now, let's, there's this magical line here. Here's the person that's not yet crossed over, and so here God's grace is working on them from the John 16 angle. He's persuading them. You need Jesus. You need to, to uh, get the righteousness of Christ. You need to avoid the judgment of God. That process goes on for a while until you finally say yes to Jesus, and then this kicks in to take us the rest of the way home. What do you think? What? Yes, sir. preordained if you don't exercise will it's all for naught yeah and or am I drawing an antinomy I'm saying to you that if it wasn't for ultimately ultimately each one of us as professional or amateur, amateur theologians we have to come to a point of decision do we think God is the initiator of salvation or do we think it's something that we as human beings sit down one day and say, you know what, I'm going to get in contact with God and I'm going to seek after God and I'm going to exercise my will and I'm going to choose to be a good person. What do you think it is? Who's the initiator? Yeah, it's God, God, God. Now, to parse it out precisely into a formula is beyond, I believe, human ability. 
What we're told are these antinomies, these apparent contradictions, that God's grace is being poured down to us. Our problem isn't that we're like resisting half the time God's grace that's being poured down on us. And then even once we become Christians, we can still do that. We can fight back against God. The point of this course is to show you where God really wants to take you to the beatific vision, union with God. And in the process, I don't want to get snagged on, you know, uh, this dilemma of uh, is, it, is it start with me or does it start with God? Take it as an article of faith that it starts with God, but you still have to respond. And that's what grace does. It gives you the ability to respond to God. Is this making sense to you? If you didn't have the grace of God, we, you wouldn't be here today. You wouldn't even be asking this question. That's how strong the initiative grace of God is. All right, we have one minute before we go. <clears throat> we got through two texts. <laughs> now, what's the last one? Glorification. What's that? That's a fancy theological word for being utterly conformed to the image of Christ. So, next week when we get back, you have the uh, handouts. Uh, look over the course. Uh, I'll pick up with Dante and Lewis next week when we get back. I'll show you how this is a theological th theme, and then we'll actually get into next week the initial stage. Terry, uh, maybe this might be interesting for you too. We're going to actually study next week this initial phase of how God moves a human who's devoid of grace into the realm of grace. How does that happen? And we'll study that carefully. So, God bless you. Have a great day. And uh, remember, this, you have great things in store for you. God's destiny is for you to be like Christ. That's the most beautiful thing you can take away from today. Okay, bye-bye.